ago, we or two months ago really, I think, we started a series in Exodus. This series theme is called Delivered to Dwell, God delivering His people so that they can dwell in the place of His promise and presence. And how we've been taking time to not only understand the context in the moment of Exodus, but also in its larger story, the story of the Bible as a whole, what God would do in even fuller measure through the personal work of Jesus Christ. Hope is that you've been encouraged along the way as we've been moving through this series and that it will be a good encouragement as we continue on. We're going to be reading Exodus chapter 7, 1 through 7, but we're going to consider the second half of chapter 6 and then those verses that we'll be reading now from chapter 7. I think they'll be on the screen for those who don't have a Bible. Let's follow along. God's Word is read. Exodus chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You, you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land out of his land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, we pray for your grace to be with us. Pray that the preaching and the hearing, the receiving, the believing, the trusting of this, your word. God, we pray that you do a powerful work in our hearts. Weak and wobbly as they may be, may we be of good courage because you are with us. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. I grew up with boxing. There was Saturday night fights. I remember them. I remember how everything would shut down for a really great fight. I remember some of those great ones that I grew up with. Duran versus Sugar Ray, Sugar Ray versus Hearns, Hagler Hearns. And of course, I grew up with the rise and fall of Mike Tyson. And with that, the maybe greatest video game ever created, Mike Tyson Punch-Out! on the Nintendo Entertainment System. I also grew up with the glorious Rocky movies. I mean, there isn't anything more patriotic than Rocky IV. Who in here didn't want a pair of those flag shorts that he wore? One of my favorite moments of a big fight was watching the ring walk. The walk to the ring that the boxers made. There would be, they would be led by their trainers and the boxers, his, his gloves would be on the trainer's shoulders and behind the boxer would be just a few corner men. Famed boxing trainer Teddy Atlas said this of the ring walk. The ring walk in boxing is part of a tradition. 
two fighters taking a short but long journey to a place that's dangerous and dark. This was before all the pomp and circumstance and entourages and theatrics that now dominate the ring walks. Back then, it was almost like a spiritual journey. Legendary sports writer Jerry Eisenberg described one of the most iconic ring walks ever. I've covered sports for half a century. I've been to every kind of championship and seen every great athlete of the past 50 years. And no moment I've ever seen had the electricity of Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier coming down the aisle and entering the ring the first time they fought. The sound of the crowd changed. It had been a low buzz during the break before the main event. Then it became something different. First, it got louder in the back of the arena. Heads turned, the buzz spread, and it kept getting louder and louder until it was a roar that told everyone that there were two champions in the house. I, I wanna, I, let's go. I want to I watch that again. A short but long journey to a place that is dangerous and dark. We have now arrived at our pay-per-view event between Yahweh and Egypt. Today is our ring walk. And as we consider this together today, I want us to really take into, the, take into account what we see here in a genealogy and then some last-minute pep talk from the Lord to Moses and Aaron. What we see here is everything we could possibly need to have courage to live for the Lord right now. To have courage to live for His glory. To have courage to live for that gospel. To have courage to make much of Him and His grace no matter the cultural or specific circumstances in and around your life. But the God that we have with us is a God who is faithful and powerful and present and gracious and good. And that you would leave here with courage. The ring walk is going to show us a couple of things. The ring walk today will show us, first of all, Yahweh's faithfulness, God's faithfulness. I use the word Yahweh. If you remember from a few weeks back, it's God's special covenant name. I'm going to keep my end of the promise. And not only that, I'm going to keep your end too. That incredibly important name of God, Yahweh's faithfulness. So on the way to the ring, we're going to reflect upon God's faithfulness to his people, his promises, and his purposes. Then secondly, once inside the ropes, we're going to see Yahweh's presence, his powerful presence among his people. So that's what we're going to consider together. So if you would, if you have your Bibles, um, look back at Exodus chapter 6. You can see from verse 14 to the end of the chapter, sort of a long list of a genealogy. And it's in this genealogy that we're going to see Yahweh's faithfulness specifically. 
genealogies carried with them historical and theological significance. They were incredibly important. Now, I know that if you've ever tried to do the Bible in a year reading plan, it would be about March or February that you hit some genealogies and you sort of like, like sort of fizzled out of that Bible reading plan about that time. Well, genealogies carry with them some very important things. It's a look back and it's a look forward. A look back and a look forward. A look back for us is that this particular genealogy is helping us see that this is connected to a bigger story. It's connected to Genesis. This isn't some sort of isolated moment, that there's actually some connective tissue to what you would read and consider in Genesis. This is the lineage of God's people. In, in chapter 6 and verse 14 onward, it starts with Reuben and Simeon because they are the first two sons of Jacob. And then we get to the third one, Levi. And Levi is who Moses and Aaron belong to. And it's important to see that this is a look back to stuff that God is already doing, promises already made, faithfulness already on display. I think for many of us, we, we certainly can suffer from nowism, where we think the only thing that really matters or is of importance or is now first happening is whatever is happening now. And we lose sight that there isn't really anything new under the sun, that you belong to a long line, and that there is a bigger story going on. It's helpful to pause and to reflect and to be honest. You can't wash away all of history, even the ugly stuff. The lineage, the genealogy is not filled with just pleasantries. There's some ugly stories that fill those lives. And yet, in the midst of that, God is faithful. So they look back. It also looks forward. There's a list of names that would be really hard to pronounce right now. But they are names that we anticipate. We see them later in the Old Testament. After they get out of Egypt and they get to Mount Sinai, these family clans have responsibilities when it comes to the worship of God as His people gather together around the tabernacle. In chapter 6, verse 16, you see... Gershon and the Gershonites. Later we find out that they take care of screens and doors in the tabernacle. In verse 18, we see the Kohathites. They later on, we learn that they take care of the furniture in the tabernacle. Then in verse 19, we see the Merorites. They take care of the frame and the structure of the tabernacle. But then we see Korah in verse 21. He led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron and lost. And yet his sons, his line, are keepers and guards of the tabernacle. They're, quote-unquote, worship leaders and psalm writers. And then we find Aaron's bride was an ancestor in the line of David. And here we have in Aaron one who is uniting priestly and kingly lines, which points us forward to that of the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
These genealogies are important. They're telling us something about history, honestly, and they're, they're giving us some theological cues to be on the lookout for. In the midst of all of it, they carry with them not just historical importance, but theological ones. And what it tells us is that there can be a whole line of broken people, and yet a faithful God. The ring walk. What would be going through the mind of that boxer as he makes his way to the ring? All of the stories that led him up to that point, all of the sacrifice and the training, all of the cost. Not just this opponent on the other side, but so much history that walks that aisle to the ring. These genealogies carry with them a long list of broken people doing broken things, sinful people doing sinful things. Like in verse 15, marrying a Canaanite woman, a pagan, they were not to do. Like in verse 23, Aaron's sons are named Nadab and Abihu, and we find them again in Leviticus 10. And they tried to add pagan worship practices into the worship of God, and they were struck down and killed. Korah tried to kill Moses and Aaron and take over, and he lost. These genealogies help us understand the reality of our humanity, broken, sinful people, yet a faithful, pursuing, promise, holding on to, purpose-fulfilling God. The story these genealogies tell is not about someone overcoming the odds, but rather the sovereign, gracious, and faithful God fulfilling His purposes and promises to a broken people. Makes me think of the Martin Luther quote. Crooked sticks in God's hand make straight lines. Honest to ourselves, we are very twisted up crooked sticks. We bend every which way but straight. And yet in the hands of Yahweh, in the hands of God, He makes straight lines. He's not limited by our brokenness and our sin and our weariness and our wobbliness. He is faithful. He is sovereign. He is superseding, interceding, proceeding forward. Not to be stopped. Not to be thwarted. Not to be pushed off track or out of balance. He is faithful even in the midst of our mess. You can't outdo God's faithfulness. And nowhere do we see that even more incredibly, then we realize that Christ, that Jesus, has two genealogies in the New Testament filled with broken people, sinful stories, and 
brokenness and aches in Christ in, in, it came all the way down into this. He didn't come down and never get his hands dirty with our humanity. He entered all the way in. In his line, we find ones like Tamar. Horrible atrocity done to her. Her name is in Matthew. Jesus comes from her line. We see Bathsheba again. Horrible thing done to her. Yet, incredible lineage that leads to Jesus. He is not stopped by our brokenness. He actually enters into it. Comes out from it as one of us to deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to his kingdom of light. God's faithfulness should mark our ring walk in this life. And the ring walk for a Christian is a short but long journey to the awareness of victory over a dangerous and dark place because God is faithful all the way through. Never not faithful. All the way through to the very end. He completes what He starts. He fulfills what He promises. He overcomes the enemies because He fights for His people. That leads us to our second point. Once that boxer gets to the ring, he goes through the ropes and he's in the ring. He's inside the ropes. And that moment is profound. The lights are usually dim in the crowd and the bright on the ring. The world sort of melts away and now there's just two highly trained professional athletes that are among the maybe 0.00001% of the entire population on this earth that can do what they can do. And they're about to square off. There's no going back. Inside the ring. Inside the ropes. Here we find God's presence. Powerful presence. With His people, for His people. There was a phrase in verse 5 of chapter 7 that says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. They shall know I am. Now, Muhammad Ali was really good at announcing to the world that he was the baddest dude in, 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 the, in the world. And for the most part, he backed it up. Yahweh is announcing, they're going to know I am. It is a leave no doubt declaration. The God of the cosmos is going to start a fight with the entire Egyptian cultist, religion, culture, everything. He is going to fight for his people. 
in the Bible, Old Testament and the New, really develops out this thought even more so that the Lord, that God, will fight for His people. Inside the ropes, before the fight begins, the trainer reiterates to the boxer whatever it is that needs to be said in that moment, whatever form of encouragement, whatever form of perspective or quick reminder, usually something like, you got this, we worked so hard, now it's time, let's go. Exodus 7, 1 through 7, is that inside the ring, at the corner, motivation, that moment when God is reassuring to Moses and Aaron, you got this, we got this, because I'm going to do this. Now my word picture breaks down. Totally breaks down. Because that trainer, speaking to Moses and Aaron, turns around and does the fight. Takes on Egypt. Yahweh will. What does he do? What does he say he's going to do? Well, verse 3, he says, I will provoke and harden Pharaoh for the fight. I will provoke and harden Pharaoh for this fight. God coming to rescue his people. And he says, I'm going to put my hand on Egypt. My strong hand is going to come down on them. And it's going to bring victory. I'm going to bring victory for my hosts, which is really the Old Testament military language. This is a fight. This isn't soft-bearded, cardigan-wearing God who's a comfortable counselor. This isn't Robin Williams from Goodwill Hunting. This is God coming to fight for His people to rescue them from the atrocity of this slavery, to bring them to a place where they will dwell with Him. This is the extent to which He will go to rescue. And Scripture again develops this thought the Lord will fight for His people. A few verses, I think they'll be on the screen. Later, after the fight, Moses writes a song in Exodus 15, and he says this in verse 3, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Your old translations would say the Lord is a warrior. God is is in the business of displaying His glory and His power in the rescue of His people from their enemies. He's not messing around. And He is not weak or wimpy. And He doesn't defer to somebody else to do it. The Lord is a warrior. Psalm 24, another one of those victorious psalms. Verse 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Or consider then in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. His presence is with you. And what kind of presence? A mighty one who will save. And it's not in doubt because he will rejoice over you with gladness. Or think about the very end. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Y'all, God is not messing around. And he brings this overwhelming victory, the fight to sin, to death, to Satan. He brings it most incredibly through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who overcomes what we could never overcome. Who gives what we could never gain on our own. Who defeats what we could never defeat. Who rises over a grave we could never rise on our own. Who goes to a place we couldn't go on our own merit. Who's preparing that place and will come back again to rescue us fully, finally, forever and restore us right for all eternity. My hope in emphasizing this is that you, weary, beleaguered, bedraggled believer, struggling maybe with your own sin, maybe struggling in a world that is just a mess, maybe struggling with just all sorts of things that are going on in your life, who may feel so distracted, so discouraged, so beat down, so despairing, so wondering, so apathetic, whatever it might be. I hope as you hear this, that you have courage. Even if it is just a speck, that there is courage that is starting to sort of burn in your heart that this is the God who is faithful to you. This is the God who is with you right now. Note the response of Moses and Aaron. Words be on the screen. Verse 6 of chapter 7. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. If you've been following along for the last couple of chapters, that statement was not ever said. Moses is the most reluctant leader. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be in the ring. He didn't want to go down the ring walk. He was saying, no, have somebody else go do this. And when they did finally get there, they flubbed it. They messed up. They made everything worse. The Hebrew is especially emphatic right here. It's to hit us. This massive change has occurred in Moses and Aaron. They've moved away from their apprehension, bumbling start. And they did as God commanded. Courage. God is faithful. His powerful presence is with you. Courage. In the face of your own bumbling ways, courage. In the face of a sinful world, courage. In the face of your own sinful heart, courage. Because God is with you. His powerful presence is with you. He will fulfill all of His purposes, all of His promises, so that His people will be delivered to dwell with Him. The God who promised 
to crush the serpent in Genesis 3.15, the God who is faithful to his wearying and wandering wayward people, the God who came in the flesh to do what we could never do and overcome what we did do, the God who crushed the grave, that God is with you. No matter your circumstances, no matter your situation, no matter your own heart, that God is with you. And he already fought and won. There, my friends, is your courage. There, in the faithful, powerful, present God. In just a few moments, we're going to close with the benediction. And the benediction comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There's a little phrase in this that I want to say now, and then we'll say it again in our close. And that's this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's your God. They shall know the I am. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it you reveal to us your character, your power, your grace, your mercy. The extent of those as you rescue your people from dangerous and dark places. God, you fight for your people against enemies we have no hope of overcoming. Just as if we were on the opposite end of a Mike Tyson or a Muhammad Ali, there would be no chance. Even greater on the opposite of sin and death and Satan. We had no chance yet. You came and you fought and you won. You are our faithful God. And your presence is with us. And I pray that that would give to us courage. To live for you, your glory, the gospel, and your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.